0: Hi, my name is Tatiana Merced, and you are listening to the fourth episode of Musically Driven. Here, we'll be talking about our favorite iconic people of color who have changed the music game over time. Enjoy! Hi, everyone. Welcome to the fourth episode of Musically Driven. Today with me, I have Dr. Raymond Wise, who is an African-American and African diaspora diaspora studies professor at indiana university and he also is the director of the african-american choral ensemble at the indiana state university he has worked as a music director for many different professional gospel choirs and has prepared choirs to sing for many professional artists i brought him on the podcast today to talk to us about gospel music the origins of gospel why he loves the gospel genre and his favorite gospel artists or pieces so dr wise i'm gonna ask you like who you are what made you interested in gospel music and what brought you to your career now
1: well uh, good afternoon it's certainly glad to be with you thank you for having me today my name is raymond wise i'm dr raymond wise i'm a professor at indiana university in bloomington indiana and if you ask the question um, of what made me interested in gospel and what brought me to this career there is a story i'm actually a fourth generation musician uh, my great grandmother was a musician and her husband was a pastor and um, her brother was actually a, a classical trained musician. He went to Juilliard and he played uh, and taught at Peabody Institute and uh, played organ and played with John Philip Sousa. So that was that generation. And then my great grandmother and her husband had six daughters, uh, four of which were musicians. And um, then the next generation was my mother. She was a musician. And um, so my mother, uh, my, my father had six children. They were three older and three younger. And um, so my older brothers and sisters were singing as a trio, a gospel trio, before we were ever born. So as soon as we were born and could talk, we were put right into the family singing group. So I grew up singing gospel music as a child. And one of my great aunts, uh, Pauline Wells Lewis, was a pioneering radio announcer in the 40s and 50s in the bottom of Washington, Annapolis area. And um, during that time, you know, if you know anything about gospel music history, it was a new musical form that wasn't really accepted in the churches. So a lot of the artists, to get this music accepted, they went out and developed what they called the gospel highway, a network network. network of places where they could perform and sing and eat and stay. Well, my aunt was a part of that network. And um, not only was she on the radio, but she promoted these major concerts of all the gospel artists uh, who were great gospel artists at that time. And because my family had a singing group, we got to sing on all those programs. So literally we grew up singing with all the gospel greats from the golden age of gospel. So that was very important. Um, But the interesting piece is I started singing when I was three, playing piano around four, composing at nine, played my first church at 12, first gospel record at 15, first album at 17. And with all of that, I decided I was not going into music because everybody said, you'll be broke. And um, it's not as much today, but most people uh, consider that if you did any kind of artistic career, that that wasn't a real career. You need to do something else. And I believed it. So I decided I was going to be an anesthesiologist went to the Health Magnet High School, and it only took me a couple visits to the hospital to realize I don't even like the smell of the hospital. So that was over. So I decided to go back down to the performing arts department and major in music, started studying classical music, and decided I was going to school for music. And when I got to school, I recognized very soon that classical music and gospel music did not mix for a myriad of reasons. Uh, Some uh, issues related to vocal health, Uh, people thought that you were damaging your voice. Other issues, because the music had not been a part of the curriculum, people didn't know how to teach it. And um, just many, many reasons why it was not uh, included in the curriculum. But as a result of having to fight to be both a gospel musician and a classical musician, it burned into my vision that people need to learn how to uh, um, perform African-American gospel music in academic settings and not be made to feel it's inferior to other musical styles. So that set me on this 40-year path and this journey to develop pedagogy and methodology to teach people how to do gospel music and do it in a way so that it could be incorporated into academic curriculum. So it's been a long journey, but I go all the way back four generations or more of people who have been church musicians or gospel musicians or pioneers in the field. And that mantle, I guess, was passed down to me. And um, now I have a couple generations beyond me of people who are also doing music and serving so uh, that's how I got to gospel music.
0: Oh my gosh, that's so cool. This is a cool background. Okay, so my next question would be like, how would you tell the origins of gospel music and spiritual music, and what is the difference between spirituals and gospels? Because I do remember you t- uh, speaking about this when you did um, when you came to Crane, and mm-hmm. I thought the the way you defined defined the two and separated them was really cool. So I just wanted to to like to hear you talk about it
1: more. Yeah, well, gospel music and spirituals are often uh, confused. People tend to uh, use the terms synonymously, but they're not really the same. Um, they are two of seven distinct African-American sacred genres. We've got psalmody, line singing, shake note singing, spirituals, hymnody, gospel music, and the standard classical art forms in which gospel music composed. Gospel musicians composed. However, because they share a lot of the common uh, musical elements, people confuse them, and they use the term synonymously. But actually, they are different. And the spiritual is a predecessor, I often call it a grandparent, if you will, of gospel music. The spiritual, of course, you know, is a music that evolved during uh, the time when African Americans were enslaved in this country. And um, as a result of that music, that music became a a primary musical uh, genre, if you will, that affected all the music of America, because it evolved in different directions. It went a a secular direction, a theatrical direction, an artistic direction, an academic direction, and a sacred direction. And out of the line of the sacred direction, the uh, spiritual, which is the field spiritual they sang in the field, it then moves into what we call the congregational spiritual, uh, where in the the Pentecostal uh, revival and movements of the early 1900s, they turned to the spiritual, began to add guitars and percussion and piano. Pianos and, and um, all of those things, and they transformed the spiritual into something that was accompanied. And then in these kind of churches, those are basically what you call storefront Pentecostal churches, they began combining blues and jazz with the white and black hymns of the church and congregational music and the quartet music. So all those things merged together to form gospel music, which comes in the 20th century. So spirituals are a 19th-century musical form. Gospel music is a 20th century musical form, but uh, gospel developed in the late 1920s and 30s when African American blues and jazz musicians came back to the church and they uh, brought with them the blues and jazz rhythms and uh, they started combining them with the hymns and spirituals of the church to form this new music called uh, gospel music. So um, as they did this music, they got into the church. How did blues and jazz get there? Because many of the people who formed these storefront Pentecostal churches were uh, former rural slaves who enjoyed the kind of emotional, effective music in the South that was not necessarily the kind of music that was being done uh, in the North. So they wanted a musical style that was reflective of the music of their culture and of their past, of their heritage. And this music was born uh, in these churches and has stemmed and evolved even since that time in the late 1920s and 30s
0: okay that's okay I love that okay so then I guess that goes into like my next like my next question because I, I talked ah, the next question would be like how has gospel music evolved and how have you seen it evolve in your career so I, like I guess it adds on because you talk about how um, gospel music evolved from spiritual so how have you seen it evolve from those 1920s from jazz being incorporated to like now
1: Yes, well, absolutely. Well, gospel music today is not the same as the gospel music that was started in the 1920s and 30s. And um, in 2000 or so, there was a, actually 1997, there was a, a song released by a young man by the name of Kirk Franklin called Stomp. And that song was pretty controversial because they were not singing in choir robes. They had hip hop clothing and they were kind of dancing and moving and all kinds of things that were not normal for gospel music. And it uh, made the church people really upset. And they were like, this is not gospel music. This is awful. But of course, according to Frank- Franklin, this was gospel. So it asked, uh, started the question, me asking the question, what is gospel music? And um, so for my doctoral dissertation, I invited that question or I entertained that question. And um, as I began to look at current definitions, they didn't define the older music. You look at the older definitions, they didn't find the current definitions, so I had to go all the way back to the beginning of the origins and did a history and a study uh, from the 1900s all the way to 2000, and in that time, I discovered a historical pattern that happens in gospel music, and it is this. Someone comes to the church with a style that's considered too secular. Church doesn't like it. They reject it, but the secular world embraces it, and they make a lot of money, so someone in the church then takes that new style, tweaks it with some traditional elements. The church finally accepts it. They take it then to a peak, and then you know, somebody comes in and does that again. So that pattern has already happened uh, five times and we're in the sixth transition right now. So we've got several eras that we identify based upon our research. We have the congregational era, the traditional era, the contemporary era, the word ministry era, the urban era, and then the crossover era is the era in which we are living right now. So the music is totally different from the early days uh, to today, but each era has its own music vocabulary and specific things that were happening in society and culture spurred artists to write and create uh, uh, in certain ways, to write certain themes or to write in certain ways or to incorporate different types of popular music into the church. And um, so gospel today is not at all what it was when Thomas Dorsey was considered the father of gospel music began doing this music in the late 1920s and 30s.
0: So like, what would you say is your favorite era of gospel music then? Like out of all of those eras that you mentioned? mentioned?
1: Um, I would say perhaps my favorite era is the contemporary era. Uh, that's between 1960s um, to uh, 1969, 70, even up to the present. And with all the eras, I don't give a, a starting and ending date because gospel music is not 100 years old. There are people who are still composing and writing in all of these styles today who are still alive. So the eras have continued and will continue as long as people are writing in those particular styles. But I like the contemporary era. That was the era, I guess, in, in which I came of age as a gospel artist and pianist and movement. That was the era with um, Clinton-Utterbach choir, with um, um oh gosh, uh, Richard Smallwood and Robert Fryson and Henry Davis and all these musicians who were classically trained gospel musicians. Then at the end of the the 60s, you get Edmund Hawkins coming out with Oh Happy Day. And that new music vocabulary was the vocabulary that spoke to me. And um, so I've always loved that. And of course, as I've gone through the years, I've certainly moved through different eras and and, and adapted different vocabularies, but that was probably my favorite. And um, it still speaks to me today because many of those musicians were my mentors um, and I followed them. i I learned music from them. I studied them or studied with them. And, um, they were the the formative years of me developing as a musician
0: That's so cool. So, um, I'm gonna segue into like more of like your career and what you do. So when reading about gospel music, oh wait, never mind. I'm gonna segue more into like the the music part. So when reading about gospel music, because we mentioned this how jazz was um like, incorporated into gospel music it was mentioned how important improvisation was in the genre especially with the piano so how do you utilize improvisation when music directing gospel music
1: well um the one thing about gospel music is based upon the african aesthetic of, of a collective art um, meaning that um there's a sense of call and response uh it's not just in the York aesthetic which is performer observed where performer does it and everybody sits and looks respectfully and listens. Uh, the African tradition is call and response. It's a collective art. Everybody participates. So consequently, um, just the nature that that the audience and the performer are in the same room, they will encourage each other to do something different. For example, say if I'm singing a song, or well, many times you hear singers sing a song and they sing the verse and they say, "Can I say it one more time?" Right. If the audience says yes, yeah, say it. Say it one more time. Well, they'll say it one more time. Well, then they may say it again. Can I say it one more time? And that's the 50th time. Been one more time, but at any rate, uh, the fact because of that circular nature of the audience performer in this collective art. Your art can change every time because of the response of the audience or the performer. But also there was a sense that there was a freedom in this music that you create the music in that moment. You are not stuck to have to do a performance that has to be this way every time. It will change as you change. You know, you may be cold and you sing a different way. You may be hot. You sing a different way. You may be angry. You sing a different way. You may be joyful. You sing a different way. And as a result of that, you will change the way that you perform it. You may do the verse twice. You may do the verse 10 times. You may do the chorus. You may go back to the verse. You may change it up. You may add something. You may do it slow. You may do it fast. So all those factors will allow you to change it as you are feeling in that moment, but there was a freedom in the African tradition to improvise, to create based upon what is happening in the moment, and that's what's so exciting about gospel music. It is not just static, but it's in flux. It's always moving, and it always changes, and people need to understand as they perform it, they have that permission to do something different.
0: So we when uh, So when I was reading on your background, I saw a lot of experience in preparing different choirs for different productions or artists. So like, how would you go about that process? And how are like songs selected? How are vocalists selected? Like, what is your rehearsal process like?
1: Well, uh, the main thing is I, I've directed many choirs over the years, but as a result of my work with choirs, um, often. I would get the opportunity to put together choirs for professional musicians or national recording artists. Uh, I worked for many years with the McDonald's uh, um, Gospel Fest committee, and they would often bring in major um, national recording artists. And I would be the one responsible for developing the choirs and putting together people who would back them up as well as the band and so forth, and kind of serving as the music director. So I did that for many years. And then in addition, you know, there've been so many other opportunities because I'm also a classical musician as well, where I was also able to then put Put together choirs to accompany uh, uh, classical concert artists as well or to do opera performances or theater performances. So um, it's really, really cool. And what my, my blessing has been is throughout my life I've had access to singers uh, in 19, uh, well actually in 1979 or in the 70s. As a teenager, I had a group uh, called Raymond Wise and the Community Ensemble of Baltimore. And I literally wrote music for them every year. I'd write a new concert of music. we do original music. And even as teenagers, we were singing, we recorded music. We were doing some really, really great things. So they were always available to sing. Um, Even when I I moved from Baltimore, Maryland to uh, Columbus, Ohio, I developed a choir called Ray's Productions Choir. And um, this choir was comprised of singers who could sing pretty much whatever I wrote or different styles of music. So we sang choral music and spirituals and gospel music as well. So as a result of that kind of versatility, uh, we would often get called and asked to participate and work with other national artists. So that was the, the way that I've always thought and always felt blessed because having the experience in both worlds, I've been able to then uh, fit as a bridge to help bring singers and people back and forth uh, to work in both of those settings.
0: So, okay, that's so cool. And then my next question is, so when going into... I just want to make sure I didn't skip anything sorry so when going into teaching acquired, choir because I've I recognize this when uh, teaching Crane Chorus and when Rose brought you in uh, this is a lot of us like the people of color in Crane uh, it's a big question and like it, it's in also my first episode of one of my podcasts because I bring in um, some people of color in Crane and we talk about like what is it like to be a person of color in the music school like What is it like to to not really learn the stuff of our backgrounds and things like that? And like, how what am I doing? Um, will be a good effect on the people in the school and like, um, the listeners and stuff like that. So T J he brought up like pedagogy and like how going about teaching that stuff in the classroom, especially to people who are not people of color. So my question is, so when going to teaching a choir that is not predominantly people of color, how does that determine the selections of music? And what would you say is appropriate and not appropriate to bring into a choir of non-people of color?
1: Well, uh, the the main thing is um, many years ago, as I was in undergraduate school, and I told you the challenges I had in trying to be both a gospel and classical musician, I had to fight. One of the things that people often said was that gospel music was not a teachable art form. You know, unless you came from the Black community, you couldn't do gospel. And um, that, in my mind, was really an excuse to say, we don't want it and you're not gonna have it in the academy. But that was also the impetus for me to say, no, I'm gonna find ways to create pedagogy and methodology to teach it to people who don't come from this background. So literally for 40 plus years, that's what I've been developing, ways to teach people who do not come from tradition, how to do that. So the issue is is um, there are, are, are skills, if you will, involved in singing. Many people just see it as a gift or talent of those who come from a certain tradition. However, when you look back and analyze it and take it apart, there are specific uh, uh, core elements and performance practices and certain things that you can do that will help you to to sing more authentically. So um, as I looked at that, uh, I knew that was a challenge. And for many people, especially those who are formally trained, who are not used to uh, learning anything without scores, you know, that was a challenge because generally gospel music is taught by rote. So the idea of how do you teach people to use their ears and to use the uh, musicianship in different ways. So um, it's always been a challenge to be able to go into different environments, but But the idea is, again, having been trained in both worlds, I'm able to say this is that, or that is this. So I can go to those who are classically trained and use their language to teach them uh, about gospel music, but then I can also go to gospel musicians who've never been formally trained and use their language to teach them about classical music, and then in the middle people can meet in that middle place. So I spent literally uh, most of my career developing pedagogy to teach people. For over 20 years, we ran a school in Columbus, Ohio called the Center for the Gospel Arts, where we literally taught classes in all the gospel arts, you know, piano and voice and and the composition and, and all of these aspects. And um, so I literally developed Uh, pedagogy and methodologies and training manuals to teach people how to do these specific things. And those are the same things that I use as a basis for my teaching when I'm teaching in the academy. Now, you said something about what is appropriate and what is not appropriate. Well, several things. When you look at the sense of church uh, uh, versus state or the separation of church and state, there is a sense that if you're going into public institutions, we are not there to proselytize or to get people saved. We are there um, because it's an academic uh, uh, institution. So therefore, when I'm teaching generally in um, uh, public spaces, uh, non-sacred spaces, I am not necessarily singing and performing music that's more uh, about belief and uh, about uh, the the faith in the way of uh, uh, becoming a christian or a person of that particular faith you know but there's so many other things like celebration and praise and hope and other areas that you can sing that anybody from any religious a, a group could sing. People who don't even have a sense of spirituality, they can sing. So you try to find things that work in that area, you know, as you're going uh, into different areas so that you can welcome people into the music, into the style, but they can find a place to enjoy it even if they don't necessarily believe it. Now, the other thing that goes along with that, when you said what is appropriate, there is a a big thing that's going on in in years lately about appropriation, the whole notion that African-American music has been uh, picked up, adopted, uh, uh, and taken over in many regards uh, for profitable financial gain by people outside of the African-American community. So for some, they're like, you know what? This music should not be taken. It should only be performed by Black folks. And I understand the fear and the anxiety, but the sense that this music of hope and joy and uh, 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 peace is not just a music for Black people. It's everybody needs hope. Everybody needs peace. Everybody needs joy. So if you're open to do that, then it is, it's it's open. Now, that does not mean that there are some stories everyone cannot sing, all right? So, for example, if you're singing, you know... um. I was down in the Valley and I couldn't get up, you know, well, if you're three years old, hopefully you're not down in the Valley. Right. But there's certain things that are relative to the Black experience that perhaps people in, you know, our outside of the community may not really be able to sing. Now, that does not mean that there are things you cannot sing if you're not African-American. For example, I think of the spirituals, for example, when they use the dialects and some of the language and the way that they speak. There are many uh, um, non-African-Americans who are apprehensive because they're like, I don't want to feel like I'm making a mockery or whatever. But the other thing is in terms of authenticity, we spend m- moments and years and hours trying to perfect Bach you know and Beethoven and Brahms and everyone else so if this music is coming to the academy we must also spend that time to perfect it and to learn to do it authentically so as we do that if there is something that is in question I always suggest that people uh, offer a disclaimer and say listen I know I'm not from this tradition but I think this music is valuable and um, we're not making a mockery, but we're doing the very best we can to be as authentic as possible. If you can help us to be better, we invite you to come help us, but we just feel this music is important and we wanna share it. So I generally try to give permission Uh, to people, to share the music, to participate, and to be a part of it. And once they do, they find a a different experience that's very different than the traditional European classical experience. So for many people, those things are are, are what keep them away from the music, Uh, the sense that they can't assess it. They're not used to doing anything without sheet music. I can't sing without music. Yes, you can. So the idea is gospel is a full body experience. And as you learn it by rote, you're memorizing it, which frees you now to clap and to rock and to use your hands and to use your whole body to emote and tell a story. So uh, uh, as I'm going in, in terms of selection, the other piece is knowing with whom you're working. Now, if I'm working with, you know, formally trained singers, you know, who could sing and can read the music, then I may go with one sense of repertoire. If I'm going with singers who've not had a lot of formal training and really are not the best uh, gifted, if you will, in terms of their voices, I would choose a different set of music. But the idea is to match the music to the people with whom you are working, and then you can find a level of success uh, uh, if it aligns with who you're working. That's so cool. Okay, so and
0: then... This is this question is not written down, but it popped in my head as you um as you so what do you think so if I just curious like what do you think like more institutions would look like if they allowed um um more music from different backgrounds or like from African American ba- backgrounds what do you think institutions would look like?
1: Well, I I think they'd look uh, extremely different. Um, one of the challenges um, that we're facing right now in the academy is many music programs are on the decline. And they're on decline almost um, because of self-inflicted wound. For so many years, they have been uh, exclusive in terms of saying only people who have these credentials or can do these things are allowed to come in. And those who come in who don't have those things are either dismissed or they don't fare very well because they don't have the skills to be successful. What's happening now is in the last you know, 20, 30 years, with many of our K-12 schools no longer having arts programs, We no longer have these programs that are growing and grooming all these students who are necessarily singing in choir and doing band and all of that, you know, from kindergarten through 12th grade. So now we don't have that feeder system just feeding us all these kids. So the the, the numbers in many academies are in decline. So what's happening is um, they're finding that if you really want to get people in the seats, you got to offer music that is appealing to the people, music that the people like, music that the people understand, and music to, uh, to to which they can relate, which will bring them into the seats. And even if you know that's what gets them to the seats, it may be an opportunity to expose them to something that might be a bridge to move them into something else. But it's certainly uh, important um, to know that you know um, if we want our schools to continually. Uh, uh, grow we must be mindful of the constituents that we have who's in our audience who's in our community how do we reach the people uh that are really with us as opposed to the ideal perfect person who may never show up at our door
0: all right i love that response okay so those are all my questions i do do a segment in my podcast it's called the music that speaks to me it could be anything you want it's just, like, right now, anything that speaks to you or, like, anything that you've been listening to, it's just something that I, you know, it makes it cool, makes it fun. Yeah. <laughs> yeah.
1: Well, there, there, there are many things. Um, I'm, of course, I'm a lover of gospel music. Um, One of my favorite gospel artists and mentors is is Richard Smallwood. Um, when I was young... Uh, teen. I literally would uh, follow his qu- choir. He had a choir called Union Temple. I'm from Baltimore, Baltimore, Maryland. He was in D.C. And his choir would come and sing. And I'd take my little tape recorder and sit there and watch. But what I liked about Richard Smallwood, um, also um, Henry Davis, who was also a Howard graduate, and Robert who went to Virginia Union, and um, Mark Payne, all these guys in the Baltimore, Washington area, but they were classically trained musicians. And I loved what they did. And I wanted to study classical music so I could play gospel music in the way that they did. Well, anyway, any rate, they were certainly mentors of mine. And then, of course, the Hawkins family, uh, Edwin Hawkins and Walter Hawkins, they were great mentors because, as I said, that music spoke to my heart. I was blessed in the 80s to have an opportunity to work uh, with the Hawkins Corporation in California and play a little bit with them. And that was really, really cool. But their music spoke to me. So they were great mentors. Then, of course, you have Andre Crouch. And then you have you know Thomas Whitfield. Um. You know, uh, so it was a wonderful group of contemporary artists, I called the Contemporary Five, um, who really changed the whole vocabulary for gospel. And to this day, almost anything that people are doing, you can trace back to that innovative music that they were doing. Now, of course, I always like the traditional folks. We always sang with James Cleveland and the Cleveland Singers and, and all of those folks as well. But uh, beyond the gospel side, um, I'm now teaching a class, which is the classical art music of Black composers. And um, so there's some beautiful a wonderful music uh, composed in the Western European style by black composers. And um, we had a wonderful class the other day. We were talking about um, uh, classical musicians um, during uh, the antebellum period, during slavery and so forth. There was a a man, um, they called him uh, Thomas Blind Wiggins, Blind Tom, and um, he was actually autistic. He was a savant and he could play pretty much anything he heard, um, but he was so gifted in music that he composed. He, he was a natural at hearing different kinds of sounds and began to write tone poems on the piano, and different poems, you know, representing the things that that uh, he heard. So um, he wrote a piece called "The Battle of Manassas," you know, which is really great, and it really visualized the the, the whole uh, the war scene. You know, he had the the drums going, he had the the fife going, he had uh, uh, the 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 the, the bombs smashing, he had the um the Dixie theme, he had the the uh, um, national star-spangled banner theme. They even had the French uh, uh, national anthem. Theme. All these things were up telling the story of this war you know but it was an ingenious piece by this man who was blind you know um and it was like fantastic you know in the 1800s right and he was one of the most uh uh, well highest paid significant grossing black concert artists of the time now he was enslaved and of course his masters and the artists took advantage of him. they made a whole lot of money off of him that he did not make but he was a musical genius and some of his works are fantastic so we've got other artists of course um, you know, we've got uh, moving to the, the, the Harlem Renaissance. Period. We got, you know, from Harry Burley to to uh, William Grant Steele and Florence Price, uh, um, you know, her pieces, her anthems, her symphonies, Margaret Bond, her art songs, you know, um, her piano pieces. Um, so there's some wonderful pieces there. Now, I have been for the last 30, 40 years. So when the gospel music, you know, that that's really where my, my mind stays. And every now and then I'll listen to some other things. And of course, I've got a son who's young and I'll hear all this stuff that he's playing. But generally, I'm a lover of gospel music. You know, beyond the classical ones, you know, people like Ricky Dillard, you know, a new generation, they're a young group and they've got this real big sound with vibrato. And some people don't like that, but I love it. You know, I love the Ricky Dillett vibrato and um, I love the choirs. So I'm just really excited about the gospel choirs and that age of choirs from the 60s to the 80s or so was really, you know, uh, those moments that were really great. So pretty much um, I'm a composer as well, too. So I write a lot of music. And um, I'm often listening to the music I'm I'm writing and creating because I'm working with specific groups and I will often create uh, works and I'm I'm commissioned to do specific works for specific groups. In fact, I'm excited right now. We just um, uh, uh, were commissioned to do a a art song cycle um, called Stargazing based on the life of Elizabeth. Breckenridge. She was a domestic worker who worked for the first uh, president of Indiana University, and it's been the most wonderful thing to be able to create this piece, and now uh, they're bringing it to life. The students are going to perform it. It's had a world premiere at Eastman, several other opera singers are planning to sing it, but listening to that music as well, the things that we compose and and all of those things, you know, so I've got a playlist, but I, I would confess that most of it is on the sacred side, and then I'll I'll turn to some of the other things every now and then, just as a release, and then many times, I don't listen to anything, because I do music so much, and I'm doing it every day, all day, when I'm done, I don't want to hear notes, turn the radio off, turn the record player, don't play a single note, I don't want to hear anything, I'm good, and just listening to, to nothing, if you will, is also a, a wonderful opportunity, too. That
0: makes so much sense. But oh my! I want to make sure before anything closes, because I I asked you all my questions. I asked you the I did the music that speaks to me segment. I just want to make sure I thank you. But you did mention the uh, Margaret Bonds. I love her. I just sang a piece by her called the Minstrel man. That's the um the yes. last like, youth poem. Yes, yes, yes. I love her pieces so much. Yes. She's amazing, and I'm yes. hoping like with one of my episodes I do a um. I want to do like an 18th, 19th century episode, and like mm-hmm. African Americans in that um in that era. So I'm also doing a research project on Elizabeth Greenfield. Greenfield. Yes, yeah. yes, she so was I'm the hoping.
1: first black uh, a concert oh. opera singer. She was they called her the Black Swan. Yes, she was the first to, to perform at the Buffalo uh, Music Society, and she performed at the White House, and she traveled overseas and performed for the Queen, and and um all of this was doing slavery times you know I she know. had a tremendous gift and her uh, her uh, owners uh, recognized that gift and they allowed for her to go overseas and study and um and she became a wonderful concert artist one of the first uh, divas if you will prima donnas um that we had of black concert singers
0: so i'm really excited that's why when you mentioned bargain rise i was like yes love her oh my God. thank you so much dr raymond wise i appreciate this so much
1: you're uh, welcome
0: and i learned so much it's going to be so cool. Thank you. Hey, everyone. Okay. So I just wanted to make sure that I thanked Dr. Wise again for coming on this show. I appreciate him so much. Um, I appreciate when I reach out to people and they're really receptive to what I'm doing. And they're like super excited to share their knowledge with me. And I'm super excited to receive the knowledge I feel like Dr. Wise, every time he talks, is, like, super informative. And he gives you a lot of information when he's speaking to you, which I appreciate so much because I feel like I'm learning something. Dr. Wise came to Crane in december 2022 to conduct four of our gospel pieces and he was just amazing and he taught us like some gospel like vocal techniques and he went into like the differences between spiritual and gospel music and started to talk to us about the history of gospel and i felt like when i started to do this podcast that i definitely wanted to talk to dr raymond wise and I had reached out to my friend Rose. Rose, I love you. Reached out to my friend Rose and I asked her if I can have his email. She said yes. And I emailed him and he was really like excited to work with me. So I'm so, so happy that Dr. Wise came onto to this show. Thank you so much. But I did because um, that interview was conducted over Zoom and I didn't have Zoom. What's the uh, Zoom Plus? Zoom Premium? I think those are the words. the the Zoom that costs money. I don't have like an over 45 minute time limit. So we started to run out of time and I did want to make sure I thanked him, talked to him more about like what's going to happen afterwards and just gave him some more information. So I didn't have a time to talk about The Music That Speaks To Me and I always enjoy talking about The Music That Speaks To Me because I think it's such a fun segment of the show. And I'm happy that I got to mention it with Dr. Raymond Wise. I keep saying his full name dr wise because i i want to hear my the people i'm interviewing's inputs i want to hear what they're listening to i want to hear what they're doing so when he brought up that god he you know gospel music is his music it was great because you know that's his specialty and it's nice to see that um, nice to see someone who's so passionate about what they're doing i love talking to people about their passions and um what they're doing and them love doing it so um, but to go into this, the music that speaks to me right now, I've been a little all over the place. Not going to lie to you, not going to lie to you, not going to lie. Um, but I did, I did want to bring this up. So I, <laughs> I was doing research during the winter. You guys know that I start I started my research prior to starting, the podcast because i needed to find things that i wanted to talk about i needed to find things i want to touch this semester and i will touch on more to like what i'm thinking of touching on in the summertime and what kind of research i'm thinking of conducting in summertime how i'm going to do my podcast in the summertime who i'm interviewing in summertime we'll go into all of that um on my last episode which is a transition episode but um when i was doing my research i was watching the queen movie bohemian rhapsody and i did not realize that freddie mercury was a person of color he is indian and no, we don't talk about that at all how this iconic person who made all of this iconic music is also a person of color as well as a part of the lgbtq plus community you know like this person is literally an icon so I know a song by him that speaks to me is love of my life. Uh it's such a beautiful Queen song. Everyone should go listen to it. I love that song. Shit. <laughs> okay. No, but I love that song. But now let me get into my releasing issue. So I really do try. I really really do try. The first time I tried, I set up the layout for my podcast because as I did a whole outline on my podcast, I knew exactly what I was going to talk about. Um, it was supposed to do every Sunday, I, not every Sunday, but every other Sunday, right? Then, I re- I did my first episode perf. Um, then I ran into some issues with trying to get people on the podcast, and then I had to come up with like had to do an episode on something i've already did extensive research on which was the rock genre then i was having a hard time getting approved by IRB, not because IRB was giving me a hard time it's just a a long it's not a long process but the process can be long if things go wrong so there were things that i had to kind of you know maneuver but it's okay uh shout out to dr bug he helped me a lot super super big supporter when it came to me getting my IRB stuff approved uh so then then there was that then you know I have to make sure I get consent from my interviewers. so anyone who's interviewing I'm interviewing I make sure I get consent from them and so I have to make sure I get a form back all that stuff that took a while and then it also took a while for me to start editing because I was in my opera at school and I also have like a lot of stuff going on with like my internship, I do an internship, and I'm vice president of a club. So I, I was very, very disappointed that it took me such a long time to get Dr. Dudley's episode out. But this time, I was so determined to give you guys another episode the next week and try to stay on a pattern until the semester starts ends. Until once the semester ends, um, and I'm hoping that you know I get as much out as I possibly can because I feel like you know. This information is so valuable, and I'm really, really enjoying the research and the things I'm learning. I learned so much from Doctor Wise. I learned so much from my conversation with Doctor Dudley. I learned so much when I was doing my research on rock. I learned so much from TJ and Zion and Vitressa and Jalen when we were talking about um, how we're contrib- contributions to music and how you know Crane and us being in Crane and, and learning those perspectives of people of color within a a music major it helped uh helped me not feel like so alone in a space that you feel alone in um so yeah yeah i'm those are the things that are going on my research is going really well uh i'm like i said i i think i said this but i can't remember i'm hoping to do like an 18th 19th 20th century like that area area episode on people of color in that area and how they've contributed to the Western classical um, realm, because we, you know, I'm talking about how we contribute to things, right? But there's in the, but I really want to talk about the things we've created that were taken, or the things that we've done that were iconic that there'd be, you know, no one talks about. Like Elizabeth Greenfield, we talked about it with Dr. Raymond Wise, and like no one talks about that. So I really want to bring those things up so I hope you guys enjoyed have a great night or day or whenever you are listening to this and I cannot wait for you guys to hear the next one